Okay, thanks, Catherine. If the next panel would like to come to the stage, please. Uh, we will have um, Alexia Ash from IHS Market, Nick Killams uh, from Chaucer Syndicates, Peter Jenkins from Brit Syndicates, and Rebecca Harding from Coriolis Technologies. Uh, this is effectively um, around the world in 80 days, except for we have 40 minutes, so it might be slightly shorter than that. We're going to kick off with, uh, with Rebecca just giving a short presentation to just to set the scene. So, Rebecca, over to you, and I'll step down. Hey, Dan, thank you very much. Um, so, um, first up, how risky is the world? So there's a general perception out there that the world is becoming a riskier place. It's certainly true rhetorically. And one of the reasons why is this. Now, what we've done um, to see whether or not the world is rhetorically becoming more risky is we've looked at Twitter. And we've looked at Twitter because it seems to be that a lot of the rhetoric around what Uncle Donald over the pond is saying um, is having an impact on how we perceive risk out there. Now, if you look at these two things, what we're looking at is the balance between trade and weaponized language. And if you look at 2017, words like hurt and protect and illegal and bilateral and massive were being used. If you look at 2018, we're already seeing a 30% increase, and we're only in September, a 30% increase in rhetorical weaponized language, and they're much more focused. The words are much more focused, unfair, war, hurt, tariffs, protect, massive. And these are all being used in trade terms. So the trade credit environment is obviously turning into something that's a little more risky rhetorically anyway. So if you then look at how this is being tied up with Make America Great Again, again, you've got this climate of noise about risk that's beginning to emerge. And again, it's become between 2017 and 2018, very much more focused on some economic things around tax, but also China, massive and winning. One, We're, they can be one, they can, trade wars can be one, etc. So you can see that this is the reason why we're perceiving that the world is actually more risky. Are we actually more risky though? Um, and the answer to that question is, um, well, if you look at arms trade on the next slide, um, and our slide on arms are, is, is interesting here because what it shows is that arms trade, now we're just looking at small arms trade, this isn't arms deals, it's not the CIPRI data, this is literally what is being traded around the world. You can see that over the last year, the level of arms trade has actually increased. Now this is looking not at the values, this is looking at levels of statistical significance. So you can see there's been an increasing significance and up to the beginning of this year where we actually saw, a, we're beginning to see that get to highly significant levels of increases in arms trade. So are we seeing the world becoming more risky? The short answer is if we look at it just in terms of arms trade and small arms trade here, then the answer is yes. And where is this happening? Well. It's happening in countries where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So we're seeing Norway, Sweden, Finland, imports of arms because they're frightened of a Russian military build-up, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that shortly. Turkey is also importing more arms. It's becoming a front line between Russia, the Middle East, and Europe. It's it's conflicted. Australia in the South China Seas. Canada is exporting more, and a lot of that is actually going to Ukraine at the moment. Mexico is also exporting more in terms of arms, 
And very interestingly, in the context of the current US-China trade dispute, um, China is also exporting more in terms of arms. So what's interesting here is that we've seen an increase in arms trade, but we're also seeing something that tends to get hidden um, in the trade statistics. We're also seeing a spike in dual-use goods. We saw a spike from actually the whole, the whole um, era of fake news and the communications. We've seen that spike go from the middle of 2015 it increased rapidly between January and the end, January 2016 and 2017, around um, the Trump election. This is just telecommunications. It's just the areas where we're looking at information security. So it's not 4G, it's information security. And you can see that there's, there was a big spike around that. Now it looks like it stopped and it's fallen back. You have got some increase, but there are some areas of the world where it's actually still increasing and increasing now. And if you look at the fake news boom, you can see where imports and exports are on the map. But the countries that are really interesting here is that there was a big increase in the US in 2016 and 17. But if we're looking at the changes now in 2018, Australia, Israel, Germany, Russia, we're going to talk about shortly, and Singapore, actually you've seen a big increase in imports and exports of these security-related technologies. So just finally, if you look at this chart, what it's showing, and the numbers are very small, but this is 50 countries where the risks have been mapped, and we've mapped the risks, geopolitical risks, across nine, nine different areas between 2016 and 2018. And you can see over that period of time that for 35 out of 50 of the countries, generally risks have increased. The big spike here is actually Denmark which is about populism and immigration policy. But you've also got countries, Russia is the fourth, China is the sixth, Brazil, Israel, and some of these countries are ones that we'll talk about. So yes, is risk increasing? Some of it is perception, some of it is actual, and we'll be discussing that in the panel. Thank you. Okay, very good. Right, so over to the panel. So we're not going to go through the whole world in, uh, in, in 40 minutes. So we're going to focus on, on six countries, actually. So we've got Turkey, Russia, Angola, Zambia, Mexico, and Brazil, which are all countries that I think are, are, are fairly important to the, the private insurance market and have seen a, a decent amount of change over the, the past few years. Um, so what we're going to do is, is basically in order, um, Alexi is going to kick off with a, a short sort of uh, trend update on what's happening in that country. We're then going to have our, our, our underwriting duo of Peter and Nick talk about what that means for the actual market, for pricing, for capacity, and, and for uh, forward trends. And Rebecca will chime in with one or two of her terrifying statistics. <laughs> okay. So, so Alexia, with, with, with Turkey, which is, I think was, was mentioned by Rebecca in her presentation, if you, if you want to kick us off, please. Thank you. Uh, so I'm, I'm from IHS Marker. We work with many of you. And I, I only highlight this because I work with a lot of analysts who are experts on these countries. And I'm basically here as their mouthpiece. So you'll forgive me for having notes. Uh, but I, you know, we're, we're talking about the whole world here. Um, and, and starting with Turkey, which is surely the, the flashiest of, of the countries that we're speaking of today. Um, and, and ultimately, what we're looking at is what boils down to uh, a standoff with the Trump administration in the context of a U.S. administration that, that no longer cares about NATO, seemingly, uh, which, which also is highlighted by some of Rebecca's earlier statistics. 
um, having a big impact, but ultimately precipitating an economic crisis that we've kind of anticipated for the last year and a half. This is not, you know, a U.S. cause crisis so much as the U.S. Uh, PR crisis becoming the catalyst for what was already a, a troubling economic situation in Turkey under Erdogan. Um, and ultimately, this comes down to uh, the impact of the large current account deficit that, that Turkey has, um, making Turkey highly dependent on FDI and on capital inflows. So in a market where investors are suddenly spooked by this rhetoric between the U.S. and, and Turkey, um, we're s and we're seeing Erdogan uh, and his attacks on the central bank independence, uh, of course, you end up in a situation where capital inflows are, are leaving. Um, and so essentially, we're looking at ultimately non-payment risks and contact <coughs> risks. Because Turkey is not a highly uh, dependent country on resources, they, we're, not, we're not expecting a lot of expropriation, um, but everything short of that uh, is likely in the, in the coming years. And importantly, in the next year, we're going to see one of two things happen. Either there will be a grand bargain with the U.S., that uh, calms markets and, and calms down those, those capital outflows, or we'll see Turkey muddles through with a significant slowdown in economic growth going to maybe one or two percent where we were expecting five or six before this all kicked off. Okay, thanks, Alexia. Nick, if, um, I mean, obviously we've seen the, uh, we, we've seen the insurance sector, private insurance sector at large sort of have um, a, a dramatic increase in terms of the tenors offered, you know, across, across the globe. Uh, can you talk about sort of how these, effectively sort of shorter term trends can affect how you're, um, you're working on Turkey, your view on Turkey? Yeah, I mean, Turkey has been probably the biggest conundrum facing underwriters this year. 40% drop in the lira, all the political problems there. But it all boils down really to a question of portfolio management. Turkey has been one of the staple countries for us. It's been one of our top half dozen countries by exposure for the whole of my underwriting career. Now, the good thing about that is we've seen Turkey weather a number of storms, especially economically over the years, and that gives us a high degree of confidence that they will come through this one. Unfortunately, as time has gone on, the type of risk that we're assuming in the insurance market now, the tenors are getting longer and longer, and we're trying to take a longer and longer horizon of view on a country that is inherently unstable. Now, <coughs> most insurers in our market are already highly exposed to Turkey. And so when you come to a situation like now with pricing increasing slightly, is it an opportunity or is it a threat? Well, it's a very different proposition if you already have hundreds of millions of dollars exposure already. And for most of the insurers, that's in the form of contract risk, in the form of payment risk. Now, fortunately, a lot of it is government payment risk uh, with the Treasury or the, um, the national banks. But that notwithstanding, I think that the exposure that most of the existing insurers are already running poses a significant problem for how we deal with the underwriting for the next year. And I think there may even be an initiative amongst certain insurers to reduce their exposures, if at all possible, in the next 18 months, rather than increase them and see that as an opportunity. And then that will have a knock-on effect on the client base. Okay, Peter, do you want to chime in there? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I broadly, broadly agree with Nick in terms of, you know, the, the issues. I mean, uh, th there's a slightly wider issue just of nation nationalism. Um, and so Turkey had actually been relatively stable for a period of time, broadly Washington consensus, et cetera, et cetera. 
Erdogan comes into power and, and the nationalism starts kicking off and, and causing various issues that are now coming to fruition. Um, so, for instance, you know, we uh, started uh, Brit in terms of this, this class of business five years ago. We wrote quite a lot of Turkey to start with, and in the last two years we've been writing significantly less, predominantly because of the political noise that we thought would seep into economic noise. Um, another issue at the moment uh, you know, around the Americans is there's still potentially a significant outcome of the Iran gold scandal uh, and fines against the banks. So at the moment in the market, I think there's a lot of noise, particularly around the short-term one-year bank financings, because they're the ones that are you know, currently on the table. Uh, they're renewable business, which is probably relatively rare in Turkey in terms of our portfolios. Um, but you've, you've got all the, the economic situation going on, and you've got the specific issues around the banks, and you've got the specific issues about, well, will the economy, the recession, et cetera, give rise to increasing bank debts for the banks, and therefore uh, uh, you know, the banks need to get bailed out by the sovereign. The sovereign's got relatively low borrowings at the moment, but you can see how that process can, um, what's the word, unwind relatively quickly. And, uh, and, uh, but the main point that, that Nick's making, and I'd agree with, is just it's not dealing with you know, inquiries or deals in isolation. The market is sitting on big portfolios that are pretty long-term. So the natural runoff of the portfolio is relatively slow, so the, the ability to do new deals or even renewal of, of existing deals when you're trying to manage positions down makes life very difficult. And just, well, just taking that on quickly, I mean, sort of one of the issues that, that Nick, you mentioned that pricing is, is likely to go up and, and, you know, underwriters have a call whether they take up that business or not. Um, I'm guessing with, with certain underwriters, and I'm not talking about yours specifically, but across the market, um, they're going to have clients where Turkey has been a very important market for a long time and will continue to be. Um, that means they'll probably have a lot of pressure to, to continue to underwrite certain business. I mean, how do you think the market will respond? Are they going to be those that are, are just going to have to carry on pushing through? And, and, and what does that put them in a difficult situation? Yeah, I imagine people will fall into two camps. The ones that will just take a very knee-jerk decision and say, no more Turkey for the foreseeable future and others that will look at business on a case-by-case -case basis. Also, we don't want to be the start of a problem by the insurance market um, voting with its feet that leads to a knock-on effect with, you know, for our client base. However, for renewal business, by and large, and especially the sort of portfolio that I've got, by and large, I do think that most insurers will be able to support their clients on the renewal business that's falling due for the next six to nine months. If, if I can maybe jump in there, because I think um, longer term, the big, the big issue is actually not just Turkey's economy, it's also uh, Turkey's geography and geographical position, and its integration into the region and knowing where it sits in relation to Europe, Russia, and, and um, the Middle East, because it's kind of politically on a fault line between those three. Too, too big to fail. Uh, too, too big to fail in lots of, in lots of in, uh, institutional reasons. I mean, we've got, we've got a lot of banks exposed to, to debt in, in Turkey, so there's a big issue there. But the other thing is actually trade. Um, and if you look at Turkey, actually, in the past and um, predictably in the future as well, it's been a conduit for sanctioned trade from Iran and from Russia. And so you see that in some of the data coming through, and this is one of my terrifying statistics, but um, if, you, if you look at the extent to which um, Turkey has increased its trade with Iran in things like areas not elsewhere specified and commodities not elsewhere specified, which is basically a catch-all for stuff that, that's sanctioned, um, it's been increasing 
above a significant level for the last two years, and that will continue because it is this conduit, and that places it in a political spectrum on the trade side as well. So that's not that's not originating from Turkey. That's originating elsewhere and going through it's Turkey. It's going through Turkey. Where is so it originating from? Um, so it originates from Russia and it originates from the UAE and it originates from Iran. Okay. Yeah. The only thing I'll take your points and I don't disagree with any of them, but I think unfortunately the most immediate problems are the economic ones. Until we can you know put a band-aid on that and stop the rot, then I have to say that you know those issues, whilst there, to an underwriting point of view, are secondary. Yeah, and uh, well, Alexia, maybe just to, just to finish on Turkey, I mean, to Rebecca's point about the strategic position of Turkey, obviously, you know, Europe is still quite important to the US and Turkey is essential to Europe uh, for a number of reasons, um, certainly political at the moment. Um, I think there, there seems to be a, an incentive for there to be a strong Turkey. Do you think Erdogan is, is effectively just chancing his arm a bit and just, you know, maybe taking a risk that when all said and done, Europe will support him, whatever he does. Yes, and I, th I think he, more, more so than that, up until very recently, was doing the same with the US. Uh, it's, it's just the fact that he thought he was in a very strong position and suddenly finds out that um, s the power structure that used to exist that, that cared very much about the NATO structure isn't, isn't necessarily as solid as, as he expected. So he may continue to push in the same way I, in re with respect to Europe, and, and that might be okay, but ultimately, as as Nick mentioned, you know, it's about uh, the economic situation, it's also about the, the banking situation, and there's only so much that can protect Turkey from, from what has already uh, started. Okay, thank you. Okay, in the interest of time, on to Russia, please. Um, Nick, you've, I mean, you, you did your degree in, in, in Slavonic and Soviet studies. Uh, you've obviously built a career in part in sort of underwriting a lot of Russian risk. Uh, what's your view on the, on the market now? Is there still opportunity, or are you sort of kowtowing to the, the, the sanctioned environment and, and taking a hands-off approach? Yeah, <coughs> it's uh, a bit of regret, I have to say, that uh, the underwriting of Russian risk is just completely overshadowed by the threat of sanctions. Uh, you know, a lot of you in the room know me. You know that you know I have more than the uh, average risk appetite for Russian risk, more than the next underwriter. Over the years, uh, Russian risk has performed fabulously for us. You know, and I'm not biased. I'm not saying that through rose-tinted spectacles because I studied there. It really has performed very well. However, there have been issues along the way. Uh, with the fall in the commodity prices, going back to 1998. If any of you, you know, were around then, I certainly was. And so we have weathered a few storms in Russia, but the performance by and large has been superb. And that is one of the many reasons why most of the underwriters are interested in Russian risk. But scroll forward now to 2018, and we do have a real problem, because uh, Putin, for all his strengths, is very idiosyncratic, and you can't guess what he's going to do next. And because you can't guess what he's not going to do next, you can't guess what the reaction's going to be uh, and then the possible sanctions consequences of that. Uh, so it does make the underwriting you know, very difficult, uh, except for very, very short-term risk. Um, there are a number of very stable, very solid counterparties in Russia that ideally I would like to take risk on. And as I said, you know, we are looking for longer tenor risk but it's very difficult to do so uh, when Russia is in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons every few months 
and you know your senior management, your chief risk officers are reading you know in the papers what's going on and coming to you and asking for your reaction on it. And so, unfortunately, for that reason, uh, Russian exposure to us has decreased over the last few years and isn't one of our top six exposures now uh, because we just haven't been able to manage this sanctions regime. Okay, and, and Peter, is it echoed across the board and is there not a temptation for some of these more juicily priced deals to, to try and find a way to get involved? Um, yeah, I think, I think broadly, I mean, to put a slightly different prism on it, um, I, I, I still have two jobs in terms of I'm still in the military reserve and I used to be full-time military and 30 years ago when I was training, I spent an awful lot of time counting how many nuts there were on particular wheels of, of, of in those days, Soviet tanks. Um, then they became our friends and now I'm getting phoned up going, oh, Pete, do you remember how we used to train this stuff about the Russians? Um, so, you know, there is a lot of political noise. Um, there is a lot of political instability and uncertainty. You've got Putin doing what Putin's doing and you've got Trump um, with a finger on the button, hopefully with some sensible people in between. Uh, you know, we can joke about it, but it is a, there, are, there are situations where things can come unraveled very, very quickly because of either idiocy or misunderstanding on both sides. But the key issue from what we're actually doing uh, day to day is sanctions. Um, and, you know, as a market trying to work out who might or might not get sanctioned by the Americans next, um, where tariffs in the broader sense also fit in in terms of metals markets, et cetera, in the U.S., um, and then the, um, what's the word, um, you know, the aspect of on the, on the banking side, you know, we're seeing deals reprice midterm at a lower pricing. So you've got this very, a bit of a market mismatch where the banks are all trying to target fewer and fewer, bigger and bigger clients. So there's almost too much liquidity in that market. Um, and they're the big buyers in our market. So everybody's focusing in on the same name. And actually, you've got a situation where pricing is coming down, whereas risk is going up in terms of, uh, or has gone up uh, because of sanctions predominantly, but also because of other issues. Okay. And is that, um, that those, those deals that are, are being repriced and priced down, are they with, with private insurance cover or with ECA cover? And is it a market that's maybe best placed for the ECAs at the moment rather than private? I suspect some people in the audience would be better placed to answer that, that difference between the private market and the ECAs, but it's certainly you know, the private market have been big supporters, and, and to some extent we still are doing deals, but just you know, many fewer and smaller lines than we would have been doing in the past. Um, and as I say, it's a, it's a very difficult dynamic with pricing coming down, whereas to some extent economic and certainly political risks have gone up. Okay. Yeah, most of these deals, to be honest with you, are simple commercial deals, and so they are finding their way into the private market or are being offered to the private market. Prior to the um, sanctions problems of the last two or three years, one of the issues with Russian risk, in my opinion, that the perceived level of risk was indeed higher than the actual level of risk, and that's how the underwriters got comfortable with it. Unfortunately, it's just too difficult to analyse with sanctions what could come next, and then the perceived and the actual level of risk, unfortunately, then equal out. Fair enough. And uh, well, Rebecca, um, obviously, Russia is a, a com country that's not only able to look west but east. Are you seeing, uh, because of the sanctions environment, uh, Russia looking east more? In, are you seeing that in the trade data? Absolutely. I think I think Russia is a really interesting case at the moment. I mean, this east-west pattern, the splitting of um, of trade on east-west grounds, has been going on for a few years. So Russia has been looking to China. It's also been looking to uh, the Middle East um, as trade partners. There's there's 
um, alliances building up actually between Saudi Arabia and UAE and Russia as well as China. And as we see the Belt and Road Initiative start to gather, gather ahead of steam, that's likely to become more, more, um, more, more entrenched. I think the worrying thing is that because we don't know exactly what's happening with sanctions and because China is also now having a, a more um, active policy towards that whole region, it does run the risk of some kind of miscalculation, as you said. There's, 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 um, there is a danger of actually some kind of a, a, a political dispute becoming even bigger just because Russia and China have a marriage of convenience at the moment. So I think, I think there are big risks there. Okay, thank you. Um, right, so, so moving on, I'm, I'm aware that Africa is not one country, it's many countries. However, in the interest in time, and because these two countries are quite close to each other, uh, Alexi, can you tell us a little bit about some of the risks and, and the, the environment in Angola and Zambia, please? Right, well, as you mentioned, Angola and Zambia are somewhat different, but in, in both cases, we're talking about a story that is ultimately a China story. Much like Rebecca was just saying, we have the Belt and Road Initiative, which is uh, gathering steam. And just for a little bit of context there, you know, if you think about the Belt and Road Initiative as essentially China's foreign policy looking forward for the next 50 years, assuming that it uh, doesn't hit as many snags as it started off with, um, essentially the, the problems that, that China has been having are, are twofold. One is uh, that they've had some pushback from local populations, and the other is that they're increasing the dependence of nations like Angola and Zambia on Chinese inputs, which is not necessarily new, but it's now formalized, right? This is exactly where China intends to go. This is their, this is their intention going forward. And so in the case of Angola, where you have a huge impact from China, so more resources, of course, flowing to China, but $17 billion flowing to Angola, on the one hand, you have short-term non-payment risks or have, have gone down because they have a huge amount of capital going in. On the other hand, Angola is now hugely dependent on that continued Chinese presence and also hugely dependent on China not you know, hitting additional snags as, as they participate in the, the Angolan economy in such an integrated way. Um, it's a similar story with, with Zambia, except that you have the kind of compli complicating factor of, of the previous corruption scandals, which we haven't really seen how China deals with, with that kind of environment um, in any real way in the past, and, and because they have had essentially political problems when they've been on the ground in these countries as this Belt and Road Initiative has started, uh, that, that could cause some, some uncertainty that we just don't know how it'll, it'll play out because we don't know how their kind of presence there will, will have a complicating effect. Okay. Um, Peter, from the, the outside looking in, it looks like these, these two countries would be, would be perfect for the private insurance market. There's lots of risk. Are you finding it difficult to, to operate? Is there enough business? And what are your underwriting considerations when, when dealing with both at the current time? Um, I mean, historically, Africa has been core to the private market, you know, particularly on the sovereign side um, and sub-Saharan Africa specifically. I think Nick would agree there. Um, Zambia and Angola are very different kettles of fishes, um, and the underwriting issues are difficult. I mean, Zambia, uh, I mean, I suppose if you read this week's Economist, Economist it gives you probably a good idea of everybody's view on where it's at. Um, I, I remember in the early days of the copper crisis, I, I, I was listening to um, a World Service program uh, from, I think it was from our own correspondent, and the Zambian correspondent was talking about how the Zambians were having a national day of prayer for the economy. And at that point, I thought, hmm, it must be worse than even I think it is. 
uh, and uh, two or three years on, you know, here we are where we are. So, you know, Zambia, it's, it's fundamentally copper, it's fundamentally uh, usual power politics corrupt, um, and the problem is, historically, you'd have a, a level of transparency, and this almost applies to both Zambia and Angola about debt levels, etc. and when they run into trouble, at least there are some structures to sort it out. Given the prevalence of Chinese lending, particularly to those sorts of countries, that sort of uh, uh, restructuring type conversation that Zambia particularly is looking down the barrel at is going to be an awful lot more, awfully lot more complicated. Um, and so, from an underwriter, essentially, you know, public sector, we've done nothing in Zambia. In fact, actually, we've done nothing in Zambia on the public sector since we started five years ago. Um, we're still doing a few things in the private sector. And we've done, I think, one deal this year in the private sector that is, when you strip everything else away, fundamentally an element of Zambian commodity um, risk. Uh, and, you know, we did that knowingly, but that was sort of the, w the one good risk that we could see in the country. Angola's slightly different. Um, uh, and again, that c it comes down to, I suppose, frontier market dynamics of, from a personal point of view, there was in the old days, there was one client that I did a lot of Angolan deals in, and for regulatory reasons, they stopped doing business. Uh, and they were the people that I knew, knew what was going on. I could have a conversation with them about what was going on. They were well plugged in, they were traveling a lot, and it gave me confidence. Um, we sort of basically came almost <laughs> off risk in Angola with the oil price collapse. And then we're sort of sitting there going, well, yeah, oil price has picked up, there is stuff we could do. But there's mixed messages about debt restructuring. Uh, we don't really know what the situation is at Sonangol. You've had all the personality changes of um, uh, Santos's daughter, etc. Uh, and you've got the Chinese issue still sitting there in the background. So we're almost sitting there going, well, okay, can somebody please tell us what the actual debt situation and debt sustainability analysis is? Because we don't know, and nobody else seems to. Um, so it's, it's difficult, but it's, I think Angola's in a very different position to Zambia, particularly given just the sheer volume of oil they have. But in both instances, there's just, uh, there are fundamental issues, but, the, but it's just one of just transparency and trying to work out what actually makes sense at that governmental level. Nick? Yeah, I mean, whilst I'm a Russophile, I also have uh, quite um, a lot of business dealings in Africa. Uh, as Peter said, we all do, uh, but I have this joint venture with the AXA that started two and a half years ago that has a purely African focus. The countries are very, very different um, from an underwriting standpoint. Angola used to be much easier to analyse. Um, Peter and I had the opportunity to go there about five years ago. I'm sorry, as time flies. But it, the, it was much easier to analyse. We uh, went round the state banks, uh, we met the Minister of Finance, we met his immediate predecessor, and the week we were there, all the talk was about setting the budget and what the oil price would be um, <coughs> in line for the um, next year's budget. And we were very impressed how conservative they were in their um, dealings with setting the projected oil price for their budget. And we thought that it was quite tightly managed uh, and that there was a lot of uh, comfort we could draw um, from the just a week-long trip to Angola. But that was in the days when the crude oil price was much, much higher. And when we saw the dip in the oil price two years ago, that obviously had such a paramount effect on Angola and its economy. We've seen a lot of delays uh, with sub-sovereign, We've seen even delays on um, state-owned banks in Angola, and some of them quite protracted. And if you think about you know, the, our 180-day waiting periods, this was coming into play. So obviously, this forced us to have a rethink in Angola. 
And even though that the crude oil price has now rebounded, uh, it is still much more difficult to, to move back in. And whereas in the past we would have taken a lot of Sonangol, um, pre-export finance risk, um, Ministry of Finance risk we used to take in large amounts, it is much more difficult now to move back into that. Sambria is a different kettle of fish. It's been something, it's a country we've been wary of for many, many years now. Uh, again, I was old enough to lead the risk on the Indani refinery years ago that took 10 years to resolve from putting the stamp down to making the final recovery. And so in the period that we've been underwriting Zambian risk, it has become pro <coughs> progressively more difficult from an economic standpoint, even before the fall in the crop copper price. But obviously, unfortunately now, with all the corruption allegations and mismanagement, it is a very, very tricky country to underwrite. And I can't, you know, apologize for that. Okay. And just, um, I mean, we started with reference to, to Belt and Road. Just a general question. Um, is the is, is the Belt and Road Initiative a a threat to the private insurance industry in any way? Just in terms of the the amount of business that may get done by the Chinese that will not involve the private insurance sector, or, or is it an opportunity in some way, or is it none of the above because it won't happen? No, it's a mixture of everything. I have to be slightly guarded, seeing we're just about to be bought by the China Re. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, in some way, shape or form, not just for myself, um, the Belt and Road Initiative will give opportunities to the private market. It's just analysing how we can do it. We started a working party about a year ago at Lloyd's on this, on, on a cross-class basis. Inevitably, there will be opportunities coming into our market just because the scale of investment in countries right across Asia and into Africa with the Belt and Road Initiative, and I'm actually very excited about it. Okay, thank you. If, I, if I could just add to that, one of the things that we've seen coming off the, the early stages of the Belt and Road Initiative is this kind of uh, running up against local content requirements, local uh, disruption, and so increasingly where China may not you know, Chinese operators may have not previously thought that they needed insurance because they had the backing of the Chinese government. That may be becoming, it may become increasingly true that they seek out political risk insurance particularly because they don't have the, the safety net that more traditional operators might. Okay. If I could just jump in now, I think, I think the, issue, the issue with Zambia and the issue with Angola is like the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, it's dependency, and just to reinforce that point, it's dependency on commodities and it's dependency on very high levels of debt financing. And one of the problems in all of that is that um, the countries themselves do not have a level of transparency. So we see that, that that should be required under under AML and KYC um, areas. So what we see in our data is that what the country says it's doing is is hugely divergent from what we do if we actually mirror data and look at look at the trade flows between two countries. So China to Zambia and Zambia to China return different results. So if you mirror those two, you end up with a difference that's so big you can't actually plot it on a graph because, because it just distorts everything else that's on that graph. So it, we're talking about several hundred percent difference between what Zambia says it's doing and what it's actually doing. That means that it's not a transparent market, which means that the risks are very, very high. Okay. Um, for the interest of time, I'm just going to move on. Um, uh, the panelists advised me not to group Mexico and Brazil together because they're very different, but I'm going to group them together because I have to. So, um, Alexia, if you can just run down in both of those countries uh, what's, what's going on. 
Well, well, as I advised before this panel, um, they both have elections. Uh, <laughs> but other, yeah, but other than that, uh, very, very different. So I'll start with, with Brazil, uh, where the upcoming election, of course, in October. Um, I'll, I'll be fairly brief about this in the interest of time. Um, but essentially, there's huge uncertainty around this election, mostly because on the one hand, you have uh, a Lula-backed candidate who you would think uh, would be fairly predictable but probably isn't because his policies and the policies that the electorate seem to be voting for are, are quite wide apart. And then on the other hand, you have a right-wing right candidate who's a total, total unknown. So uh, two things are gonna be happening in 2019. One is the market's gonna be reacting to what is essentially a new and untested government that nobody knows what to expect from. So there will be a lot of uncertainty for at least the first six months just seeing how that government operates. And the second thing is that quite a few critical decisions have been pushed off to 2019 because of the current political uncertainty in Brazil. Things around uh, macroeconomic policy, fiscal deficit, pension reform, all these things that will have a big impact on the economy and all these things that we don't necessarily um, have a good view on where either of these uh, potential new presidents will, will take the market. And so because these decisions have been taken from 2018 and pushed off a year, uh, there will be quite a few decisions to be made that if in the likely case that the political uncertainty stymies those decisions are going to have a big impact on the already uncertain economic environment. Okay, um, Peter, any comments on that? Do you want me to go over Mexico as well? <laughs> I, you, well you know what, yeah, go, go over Mexico as well and then okay. we'll comment on both, yeah. In, in Mexico, where, we've, um, where we have a new president taking office in December 1st, we have a more, uh, a more stable environment, not least because of the bilateral agreement um, with the U.S. over uh, as amidst the NAFTA talks. Um, but importantly, what I want to point out about Mexico is while we don't think, while we think there's a lot of certainty going forward because, uh, because it's a little bit more of a known quantity, the big impact will be the future in the energy market and the future in the in infrastructure sector where there's a lot of uncertainty about how uh, this new president will go through with energy reform, with the corruption investigations into the sectors, and, and the larger role of, of Pemex in the case of energy. Um, and so importantly, while a lot, a lot of things are, are looking positive for the, for the new Mexican administration, um, the energy sector and infrastructural sectors are the one to watch for risk. Okay, Peter? Um, I've got much more business on the books in Mexico than I do in Brazil. Uh, again, just because I suppose just because of timeline of where we where we started the business. Um, Brazil is very difficult. Uh, we historically our market has done an awful lot in the agri sector uh, in Brazil, and it goes wrong every three to five years basically. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, we therefore missed missed all that stuff. Is it still going on at the moment? Yeah. Okay. Fine. Um, <laughs> uh, the sovereign level. Uh, we see inquiries at the sovereign level. There are deals done. I mean, they tend to be far too cheap, but you know. Brazilian sovereign level, but historically they've been okay. Um, Mexico is much more interesting. Um, you know, what will Obrador do? You know, what did he? What was he talking about five years ago? What was he talking about three years ago? What was he talking about six months ago? Um, and now he's president-elect. Um, so, you know, I, I think he'll go after the energy sector, or look at, sorry, rather than go after, look at the energy sector first, um, and then different aspects of the infrastructure side. Um, there is a good, s relatively solid legal system there. Um, there is only so much government capacity for changing things overnight, so you know, e energy will certainly take uh, a, a large amount of his and his uh, government's energy. 
We are seeing um, bureaucratic inertia because of the change in terms of just basic contract things at the governmental level not being signed off because everybody's worried about corruption. Oh, it's not my deal, somebody else did it. Uh, oh, I'll wait for the new guy to sign this off. Uh, and just those sorts of, of, of certification type delays, which is surprising, but in, in this sort of situation of quite a uh, significant government change, un understandable, um, and clients generally are working with it. Um, yeah. This is going to turn into just a minute, isn't it? But don't, um, no, 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 don't. The, the, the clock, we've got a clock below us, but it does sometimes lie to us slightly. <laughs> Other speakers don't take note of that. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm going to have to talk about claims and recoveries at this point. Um, Brazil is just, for a lot of us, you know, a very heavy rucksack that we are carrying around on our backs. We've had waves and waves of claims, especially on the credit side from Brazil, and very few paid recoveries, and that makes the underwriting of that country very difficult. It's very difficult for uh, an existing book to see the opportunity at the moment going forward in Brazil. There can be some risk, and Peter said about some sovereign deals that come in, so I wouldn't exclude it entirely, but I spend a disproportionate amount of my time trying to um, sort out old claims and recoveries uh, in the Brazilian agri-sector, the metal sector, it's not just one sector within the Brazilian economy, it's much, much wider than that. And unfortunately, that just jaundices our opinion of the underwriting. Mexico, yes, there have been credit claims in Mexico uh, over the years, <coughs> and they, they, they tend to come in, in waves, but by and large, the underwriting of the state risk is much, much easier. Um, we have done a lot of good work with Pemex over the years and with um, subsidiaries and tributaries of Pemex, and we've done a lot of, of very good MOF work in Mexico, which I don't intend to stop doing. But at the moment, unfortunately, the underlying message with Brazil is that we're very, very cautious. Okay, thanks. And uh, Rebecca, anything to, to add on, on what you're seeing through some of the trade data for these countries? So I think, I think what's interesting about Brazil and Mexico um, is, is the things that are, are common at the moment. So it's actually lack of investment in infrastructure and the infrastructural risk. So if you look at, if you look at the amount, and obviously this is a proxy, but you look at the amount that's being brought in in terms of infrastructure products, particularly in, into Brazil, it helps explain why there's been, there's been an, an issue now. Um, because over the last five years, not enough has been in imported to manage and build the infrastructure that it needed in order to be the future economy that everyone wanted it to be. So you can actually see that in the trade data, and that, and, and that combined with all the other political issues means that there's a serious problem in Brazil. Um, the, the, the thing that's interesting, though, is actually the commonality between Mexico and Brazil, and I would argue that that's actually the way they're, they're all caught up in US-China trade disputes at the moment. So, I mean, Mexico, Mexico has seen its trade with China increase massively. Behind the scenes, part of the dispute with uh, NAFTA and trying to get a deal with Mexico has been to try and stop China coming into China coming into the U.S. through the back door, um, because a lot of the electronics trade that we've seen has been growing significantly as well, and that's coming through Mexico and into the United States. Brazil, on a positive note to end, um, is actually one of the countries that could benefit from uh, the fallout because it is an energy exporter, but it's also a soya exporter. And I think those two areas might actually mean it can benefit <coughs> to some extent from um, the, the, the US-China trade dispute. 
Yeah, but the um, combination of the political upheavals in Brazil and this constant short cycle of boom and bust on the commodity side mean long-term investment, yeah. infrastructure projects yeah. become nigh on impossible. No, I would agree entirely with that. I mean, I'm, I'm flagging it. I was trying to end on an optimistic right. note. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, always, it's always tempting in these occasions to make everybody feel like they need to reach for whiskey and aspirin at the end of it. But I think, I think on a positive side, there could be a benefit. The risk is that one one belt, one road, belt and road initiative suddenly decides it needs to go to <laughs> go to Latin America um, because actually China doesn't have those concerns about risk underwriting. And so it's already invested a huge amount in Brazil. Um, a lot of the infrastructure that is being built is, is Chinese as well. Chinese, it's in their own interest to have good agriculture and good agricultural and oil infrastructure there just in case something happens in the US. So, I mean, I would say there's, a, there's an opportunity and a huge risk there. I was offered one piece of positive, uh, positive news about Brazil. Maybe we can end on that. Um, so we see Brazil going in 2019 towards kind of fiscal and pension reform, and that's going to be very difficult. And so a lot of people are saying, you know, is this going to be the new Argentina? And certainly it's going to lead to a lot of debts. But uh, most of debt in Brazil, like the vast majority, is domestic debt as opposed to uh, external debt, which is the case with Argentina. So it'll be more self-contained than other Latin American crises we've seen in the past. Is that optimistic? Yeah, it, 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 it's getting there. Actually, I was, was going to see if I could work in a one belt, one roller coaster kind of thing as well. But uh, okay, well, f final question. Actually, just a gentleman in in the middle. Um, slightly difficult question. We've talked about Turkey, Russia, Angola, Zambia, Mexico, and Brazil. If it was a league table, and you were looking at within the next five years, which is likely to see the the largest growth within? the portfolio of, let's say, the, the wider Lloyd syndicate, the, you know, uh, uh, the whole Lloyd syndicate, so don't just talk about your own book. W you know, how, how would you rank that in terms of growth over the next five years, in terms of the, the, you know, the growth within, within private insurance brokers? Yeah, ob obvious answer, sanctions permitting uh, Russia without a shadow of a doubt. Russia's number one, and followed by? Peter? <laughs> For me, I'd probably say Angola on the basis that we will get clarity and we will get, you know, be able to do deals, and we're currently doing none or very few, so growth-wise it would be significant. Okay, yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if someone would try a get-out clause with that one. Yeah, okay. Um, and those that you're sort of least positive about? <laughs> the Zeds get relegated again. Okay. All right. Well, I'd just like to say a massive thank you to our panel, uh, Alexia Ash, Nick Killams, Peter Jenkins, and Rebecca Harding. Thank you very much.